the 18th verse in the second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. And now, what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sire? Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? And now, what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? For that is what it means. Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river, the river Euphrates? Here we come to yet a further statement uh, addressed by the prophet Jeremiah to his contemporaries, the children of Israel. We've been working our way through this chapter because here we have the account of the first message the first address that was delivered by the prophet Jeremiah to these children of Israel. Now, we must remember, as we come back to it again this evening, uh, something of the circumstances in which they were placed. They were in great trouble. Indeed, they were in a terrible condition of distress. Everything had been going wrong in every realm. But the most serious thing of all was that they were threatened by an invasion by a Chaldean army. And here they were, in this awful predicament, beginning to see how things were going, and yet still persisting in their refusal to do the one thing that they should have done at the very beginning, namely, turn back to God in repentance and casting themselves upon him. And the whole object of the prophet is to address them concerning this situation. He was called and raised by God, and God gave him the message. And this is the essence of the message that he gives. But we have seen, and we go on to see, that he doesn't content himself merely with making a bold statement. He works it out in detail, as if to say to them that they were altogether wrong, that indeed there was nothing right, right about their whole position and attitude and situation. Now, I'm calling attention to all this because, uh, as I'm repeating Sunday by Sunday, this, it seems to me, is the very message of God and of this book uh, to the world in its present situation and predicament. Now, let me put it all to you in this form. What is the greatest need of the world tonight, at this very moment? What is the greatest need of the individual? What is the greatest need of men collectively? And I'm here to make this assertion on behalf of Christianity, the Christian message, the Christian gospel, on behalf of this book, and to assert that the supreme and the most urgent need of this world at this minute is this book. Now, that to many, of course, sounds utterly ridiculous. The vast majority of the people in this country would regard that as a purely idiotic statement. They say that a man should have the effrontery to stand up in 1960 and to suggest quite seriously that the greatest need of all of us is the Bible and the message of the Bible. And yet that is precisely 
the claim which I make as a Christian minister and as a Christian preacher. And I'm not merely making a claim. I'm here to substantiate it and to give you a demonstration of the accuracy of what I'm saying. Now, the Bible, you see, takes this fundamental point of view. It says that ultimately there are only two attitudes towards life, towards man, and to all our circumstances. There are only two attitudes ultimately, and they are these. The attitude of the Bible and every other attitude. Now, it doesn't matter what the other attitudes may be. The thing that is important about them is that they don't subscribe to the biblical attitude, to the biblical teaching. And therefore, they can all be classified under this general heading of being non-biblical teaching, non-biblical attitudes. And what is remarkable is this, that there is a kind of inner unity in both these teachings. That's one of the glories of the Bible. And if you'll allow me to put it in a purely personal manner, uh, to me it is one of the most thrilling and exciting things about uh, a constant study of the Bible, namely to discover its essential unity. You see, the Bible's got a fundamental point of view. And the moment you see that, you will find that everything fits into place and into position. The Bible's got a system. It isn't a collection of odd teachings. The Bible is not like certain books which we have. You can buy books of aphorisms, books of quotations, books of sententious statements. Now, the Bible isn't a book like that. It's got 66 different uh, books in it and uh, written by different men at different times and under different circumstances and so on. And yet I say this is the remarkable and the amazing thing. There's only one message. And it's uh, a whole message. There is a center and everything radiates out from that center. And it doesn't matter what problem arises, what philosophical question is posed, you will find that it can always be related to this particular center. There's a wholeness about it. There's a consistency about it. And uh, therefore the outlook of the true Christian is always a consistent outlook. Now the same thing is true, unfortunately, also of the non-biblical view. It's not only wrong in general, it's wrong in particular. It's wrong everywhere. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, should it? If you think of all this in terms of a journey. If you start out on the wrong road, well, everything you're going to do is going to be wrong. If you've already taken that first false step, doesn't matter how much further you may go, doesn't matter how light your step, it doesn't matter how fast you can run, if you're already on the wrong road, everything's going to be wrong. And that is precisely what the Bible tells us about all these views of man and life and the world and life and death and all the rest of it. It's altogether wrong. Now, that's the very thing, surely, that those who've been attending here regularly Sunday by Sunday must have already have observed as we have been working our way through this second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. He takes a point after point, and they're wrong every time. There is nothing right about their attitude. His case is, 
that they are all together. Doesn't matter from which standpoint or aspect you look at the situation. And it is in order that I may show you that. Within respect to this particular aspect of the matter that is dealt with in this 18th verse. That I am emphasizing it in particular this evening. Now let me put it to you like this as briefly as I can. What is the great problem confronting everybody tonight? What's the problem confronting the individual? What's the problem confronting this country? What is the problem confronting the whole universe of mankind? Isn't it this? Are we not all in different ways and in some shape or form or another seeking for peace? Seeking for happiness and joy? Seeking for satisfaction, seeking for security. Everybody's out for these things. Nobody's looking for misery. Nobody's looking for problems. Nobody's seeking out for discord. No, no, everybody is intent on this one great quest. We are aware of problems. We are aware of difficulties. We are surrounded by them. And we've got them within us. Everybody's confronted by a problem. There's no question about that at all. And everybody today really is admitting that. It's the thing that's coming out everywhere. One gathers from the press and the critics that even what used to be entertainment is now nothing but a discussion of problems. I gather that that's the position in the theater. That instead of having romances and so on, now it's always a dissection of problems. Well, that's just an indication that the whole world is realizing that we are literally... Uh, surrounded by problems. They're inside us, they're outside us. And the problem is how to get out of it all, how to get rid of it, how to find satisfaction, how to find rest, how to find peace, how to be happy. Now that's the great question. You see, it was the same question that was confronting these children of Israel. Here they are, things have gone wrong. Here's the enemy, what can we do? And here we find the prophets denunciation of what they are doing in that respect. And what strikes us at once is, as I've already said, that here again they're as hopelessly wrong as they've been in every other respect. So let me put it to you like this. In view of the fact that there are only these two positions, and that they've both got a kind of inner consistency, what man needs is not to correct his difficulties and his problems here and there. He needs to change his whole position. Now that's the fundamental statement of the Bible. To become a Christian is not a mere improvement on the surface. It isn't to make an adjustment here or there. There are many people who think that that is Christianity, but it isn't. Christianity is to change entirely. New Testament uses this kind of terminology. It says that we're all by nature in the kingdom of darkness. It's a kingdom. And we need to be translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. If any man be in Christ, well, what's happening to him? Is he just a little bit better than he was? Oh, no. He is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What man needs, I say, is this whole biblical outlook in every respect. Now then, let's look at it. 
Why does he need this? Well, my first answer is because man is in trouble for the simple reason that he has ignored the biblical teaching. Now, I needn't stay with that tonight. We have really been examining that. Why is man in his predicament? There's only one answer. He is in trouble. He is in his present predicament simply and solely and only because he has not believed this teaching. If he had believed this teaching, he would never have been in trouble. Now, that was before us last Sunday night in this particular form, that Israel had never realized the truth about himself. The nation hadn't realized the truth, that it was son of God, children of God. They were slaves and servants. They were never meant for that. It was their failure to realize that. They'd never realized the cause of their troubles. You see, they were explaining it in other ways. They were explaining it politically. They were explaining it economically. And they thought they were clever in doing so. But they were all wrong. There was only one explanation. If this people had only realized that they were God's people and had only remained true to that, they would never have got into trouble at all. Never. That is God's message to them through this man, Jeremiah. He asks them, why did you turn your back on me? What iniquity have your fathers found in me? That they have gone far from me and have walked after vanity and have become vain. Why have you done that? Now there it is, you see, there is the beginning. They're wrong even in their understanding of the situation. But now let us come on to the second thing, which is the thing that's emphasized particularly in this 18th verse. Man also turns to false expedients because he does not believe the teaching of the Bible. You see how he puts it. Here you are, he says you're in trouble, you've become a slave, you've been spoiled. The young lions have roared upon him and yelled. They've made his land waste, his cities are burned without inhabitants. And now, in this predicament, what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the great river, the river Euphrates? Now you see the position, don't you? Here is Israel in trouble. And she says, something's got to be done. Unless we do something, we're going to be defeated. We're going to be destroyed. And we're going to be carried away captive. Our city is going to be ruined still more than is already the case. Now they said, we must do something about this. We've got to recognize the situation. Mark you, it had taken them a long time to come to that. There were false prophets in Israel as there are today. And the false prophets had said, oh, they said, it's all right. Jeremiah deals with them later on. They have healed the, the hurt of the daughter of my people lightly and slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It had taken them a long time to realize the desperate character of their situation. But at long last, they'd come to realize it. And they'd had a council and they'd said, what can we do? And there were those who said, go down and ask for help in Egypt. Why, they said, Egypt's a great country. The country, they said, is like the river Nile, branching out into these branches. There's an abundance of water there, which is a figure for saying, oh, they've got great armies, they're a powerful nation and a powerful people. Let's go down to Egypt. 
And others said, let's go to Assyria, again for the same reason, mighty nation, like the river Euphrates again, huge river, massive armies, great people. Now they said, let's go for help. And here they were, at one point going to Assyria, at another point going to Egypt. Quite convinced in their own minds that if only they did this, they'd be delivered with this great power that these people could supply, and that soon everything would be quite all right again, and they could continue on the even tenor of their way. That's what they're doing. But here is the prophet's message to them. Now, what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt, to drink the waters of the Nile? What hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? What are you doing? Why are you turning to these things? Can't you see, says the prophet, that you're as wrong here as you've been wrong everywhere else? You turned your backs upon God. You don't understand yourselves. You've brought the trouble on yourselves. And now, seeing your trouble, you're still doing the wrong thing. Seeking your help in Egypt or seeking it amongst the Assyrians. Now here, my friends, is a most important message. I venture to suggest to you that there is nothing for this modern world of ours this evening that is more important than this 18th verse of this second chapter of the prophet's prophet, prophecy of Jeremiah. I'm suggesting that there's nothing so urgently relevant to the world tonight, to us individually, to the whole country, to the whole world, as just this very thing. What do you mean, says someone? Well, what I mean is this. The world as a whole tonight is in the position of the children of Israel. The world realizes that there's something wrong. Our papers are full of the problem. Parliament's always discussing it. It comes before us everywhere. It's recognized that things are not as they should be. Now the question is, what are we to do, therefore? What are we to do with these problems, the moral problems, the social problems, the international problems, with all our problems? What are we to do? And what is mankind doing? Mankind is repeating the action of the children of Israel. Where are we turning? We are turning to Egypt. We are turning to Assyria. We are turning everywhere except to the one place we should go. Isn't that the trouble? Let me work it out. What is it that men and women are turning to? Well, it's obvious, isn't it, that there are large numbers tonight who are turning for relief and for help to sheer pleasure. Oh, let's be clear about this. There are thousands of people in this country who are living for pleasure. Why? Well, it's an attempt to get away from the problem. It's an attempt to solve it. While you're doing these things, you're not thinking, and therefore you persuade yourself that you're happy, that you've got a solution. We all know about this, the drinking, the gambling, the drugging, and the sheer pleasure mania. Now, this is very significant, isn't it? There's something to me very sad about it all. You read about people cramming the West End and holding up the traffic last night. I believe they're doing it tonight, according to one of my friends just now, who had great difficulty in coming to this service. Why? Well, because the streets are jammed with people. What are they doing? Looking just at lights? 
Do you know of anything sadder than that? That adult men and women and children with gifts of brain and intelligence and understanding should just have to go and look at lights, illuminations. This surely is telling us a great deal about the state of soul, the whole state of being of men and women. Well, I mustn't keep you with these details. There are people I say who are living on sheer pleasure. There are people who've said goodbye to morals and moral ideals. Why, well, they said we must get some release somehow. And so they're letting themselves go. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In this atomic world of ours, they say, with all these bombs and so on, who knows what's going to happen? I don't understand it all very well. Then they solve their problem by plunging into anything that arises within them as a call. And off they go. The pleasure mania and the immorality. But that's not the only thing. It wasn't only Egypt, it was Assyria also. There are endless things. I just want to give you a list. There are many who really feel, you see, that the one thing that matters at a time like this is to have economic security. And surely this is the biggest thing of all today. Everybody's concerned about economic security. That's the thing they want. They're not interested in anything else. Money. They're so interested in this economic security that they may very well be cutting their own throats because they're not prepared to adjust. They've only got one idea. We must go on having this amount and more. And if the cost of living rises, we must go up in our wages. And you get this vicious spiral that may ruin the whole thing and everybody with it. But you see, it's because it's this, this desire for security, for safety. So many are pinning their faith to that. They don't think about anything else. They don't think even of international problems. It's this question of my own personal security and what I'm going to have and possess. And as long as I've got that, well, I won't think of anything else. I just want this. And while I'm happy now, all is well. And so they go on. Others put it in terms of social conditions. And then going up the scale, there are those who believe, as I'm never tired of reminding you, that the solution to the problem is knowledge, education. Teach the people. They say all problems are due to ignorance in the last analysis. If people could only think, they'd solve their problems. This has been the favorite teaching, hasn't it, this century particularly. Its prophets have been people like H.G. Wells and others. They said all wars and everything are due to sheer lack of thought. Teach the people to read, teach them to think, make them read the great philosophies of the past. This has been the humanist teaching that has been so popular. And once people are educated and think and can read, all will be well. I was reading a statement by a man who was a very great man, Thomas Jefferson, one of the men who drew up and was perhaps more responsible than anybody else for the American Declaration of Independence. And Thomas Jefferson taught quite solemnly that if only you educated all your people and they could read newspapers, that you'd solve your problems and would have no more difficulties. Poor Thomas Jefferson. If only he'd lived to see this modern age in his own country and in this one and in all other countries. But these, you see, are the things to which we are turning. And others, you see, put it like this, that the way to deal with all these problems, I mean now the social problems, the problem of crime and things like that, they say the way to deal with this is to have no punishment. They say people have punished in the past, you mustn't do that. You mustn't talk about punishment and discipline, you must introduce reformation, rehabilitation. 
They say you must be kind to the delinquent. You must be kind to the criminal. You don't punish him. You teach him. And furthermore, they say what he needs is not punishment, it's psychiatric treatment that he needs. So build more uh, prisons and finer prisons, more hospitals, get more psychiatrists. And you've just got to give these people this kind of psychiatric treatment. And you'll rehabilitate them, you'll give them a better outlook and a nobler understanding. And so you'll solve the problem of your crime. You've started doing it in your schools already with your children, and you take it on to further education, you multiply your schools, you spend more millions on all this, and then you do it with the case of the delinquents, and eventually there will be no crime. Then another way in which we do it is this, even internationally. We believe in moral gestures. The embodiment of this, of course, was the late Mr. Neville Chamberlain, who really did believe that if only he could go and talk to Hitler men to men, as one businessman to another, there'd be no war, it would all be solved, and he really believed it. And there were those, I remember, who said when the trouble began in the Far East, in the war between Japan and China, they proposed to go out, a number of them, and just stand between the two armies believing that when the two armies saw them, they'd both drop their arms and go home. A moral gesture. You see, that's the thing that's needed. If man's only shown a better way, if only you appeal to the highest that's in him, if you only hold up your ideals before him, he'll rise to it. That's the treatment. That's the thing that's believed, and these are the things that we are practicing. It can be done today with the communists or with anybody you like. If only one nation disarms completely, the world will look on and say how marvelous, and they'll all destroy all their arms forever. That's the teaching. You see, it's all fitting into a pattern. And so we work it out all along the lines. We are spending millions on physical training and on sports for young people, build up their bodies. We are told, give them some exercise. And then as long as they're doing all this, there'll be no more crime. These are the expedients to which the world is turning today. And it's costing millions and millions of pounds. It's leading to endless conferences. The books are pouring out. The world has never been so busy in trying to treat itself. And you know there's something which is almost laughable about it all. Did you catch the ironic touch in this verse of mine? What hast thou to do in the way of Egypt? And then oh, what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria? This is what it means partly. Egypt and Assyria were bitter, deadly enemies. And you see, what Israel was doing in her cleverness was this. She'd go to Egypt at one point to play off Assyria. Then a new situation would arise. She'd rush to Assyria to play against Egypt. And here she was, like a kind of shuttlecock, back and forth between Egypt and Assyria, accommodating, trying to manipulate and to arrange it all, and thus doing something that was quite self-contradictory. And the world has been doing that. It's doing it now. I'm old enough to remember men speaking and preaching and lecturing with great vehemence and saying, the cause of all our troubles is poverty. The cause of all our troubles, they said, is that men are working too long hours. They're too tired to read and to think. I'm old enough to remember this. There was only one thing needed, and that was abolition of slums, abolition of poverty, deal with the economic problem, give men plenty of means, give them good houses, and so on. 
and educate them and train them to think, and there would be no further trouble. That was going to Egypt. What's it now? Well, now it's the exact opposite, isn't it? You read your newspapers. You read the reports of these great conferences that are held on juvenile delinquency and all these various problems. And you know what they're saying now? They say, the problem confronting us is the problem of the affluent society. They say, our problem today is due to this. People have got too much money in their pockets. That's the problem. These young people, teddy boys and others, they say that's the difficulty. They've got too much money. If only they hadn't so much money, there'd be no problem. But you see, a few years ago, it was because they hadn't got enough money. Egypt, Assyria. Before it used to be that they worked too hard and got too tired, the hours were too long. But what we're all studying today is the problem of leisure. How to use our leisure. What to do with their spare time? Men work such short time. There they are. They don't know what to do. And they must have an outlet for this energy that they've got in them. This superfluity of energy. The problem we are being told is the problem of leisure and of too much time and to discover how to use it. Well, here we are. You see, the modern world is running to Egypt and then running to Assyria. And it involves a great effort and a lot of balancing and a lot of self-contradiction. But now let me come to the vital question. Why does man do this? Why does man turn to such expedients? What is the explanation? And this is the answer. The explanation is purely biblical and purely theological. Does that sound sense or nonsense to you? I am here to assert again that the whole explanation and the whole problem is purely biblical and purely theological. What was the trouble with Israel? Why did they rush to Egypt and then rush to Assyria? And there was only one answer, and that was that they didn't realize who they were. They didn't realize that they were God's people. Their trouble was at the very center, and it was this whole question of theology and of doctrine and of the teaching of the Bible and understanding fundamental truths. And I'm here to assert this evening that the main problem confronting the world tonight is a purely biblical and a purely theological one. Why are men and women, I say, rushing to these various things that I've been describing to you? And the one answer is that they are ignorant of the truth and ignorant of the truth of God. And the tragedy is this. That there are, I believe, Christian men in high positions of authority and even of government who are themselves Christian men and living a good Christian life, but they're taking the advice of non-Christians. And they are resorting to expedients that are a negation of the biblical truth. This, it seems to me, is the explanation of all the legislation and the proposed legislation by which we are confronted at the present time. 
There is only one reason why men and women are turning to these expedients and it is that God is not being recognized and that God's relationship to men and to the world is being entirely ignored or else forgotten. The world is as it is and it is trying to cure its ills in the way that it is doing because I say it always starts with man and itself and forgets God and the eternal and God's law. How does it work out? It works out like this. The soul that is in men is entirely forgotten. Man is not being regarded as a soul, he's being regarded as an animal. As a thinking economic animal and nothing else. The soul. The highest thing in men is highest endowment. Is entirely ignored. And that of course leads to this. That sin in men is being entirely ignored. Why do we think that education can solve the problem? Why do we think that giving men good houses can solve the problem? Don't misunderstand me, my dear friends. I believe in education. I believe in good houses. I believe in economic security. I'm not here to denounce these things. What I'm saying is this, that if you put your faith in them, that if you pin your faith in them, if you say that's all, then you're in the position of these Israelites. And that is what is happening today. What is being entirely ignored is the fact of sin in the human heart and in the human breast. What is being forgotten is that man is just not a, just a mind or an intellect. He has these other parts in him. There are lusts and passions and drives and forces stronger than a man's mind, stronger than his will. This is being forgotten. And it is regarded as purely a matter of information, purely a matter of instruction. They really seem to believe that sin can be dealt with by acts of parliament. And that if you only remedy certain ills, that all is going to be well. They've never realized this awful power that's in men, that though he may be a brilliant genius, he may go wrong, he may go down, he may make a fool of himself, he may ruin his own life. It's happening. And you see, in the same way, the whole notion of crime is rapidly disappearing amongst us. Everything is being explained today in terms of disease. Diminished responsibility, they call it. They say, don't regard that man as a criminal. He can't help himself. He's made like that. Why did he do that? Well, he couldn't help it. There was a great drive. It's something physical. It's almost disease, they say. Yeah, there's no crime any longer, and we must stop calling things crime, and people mustn't be tried, they must be sent to hospitals. Isn't this the new idea? Crime is disappearing. We don't believe in discipline, we don't believe in punishment, we don't believe in restraint. We don't believe in retribution. We say, be kind, be nice to one another, and then everybody will respond and all will be well. Don't be harsh to that man. Don't punish that man who suddenly enters a poor old woman's house and clubs her on the head in order to rob her. Be kind to him. 
train him, give him psychiatric treatment, regard him as in a diseased condition. That's the prevailing view. This is being passed in Acts of Parliament. We are told this is the way to solve our problems, and it's being applied all along the line and even in the international realm. That is the reason why man turns to these various expedients. He thinks he knows, he thinks he understands. He is quite confident about it. He says, if only we do this, and so he's spending his millions multiplying his organizations and institutions. Egypt, Assyria, anywhere, everywhere. Can't you see that it's all based upon this same central fallacy as was true in the case of the children of Israel? What are you doing there, says this man? Why are you going to Egypt? Why are you going to Assyria? What's the matter with you? Do you think that these things are ever going to save you? That's what he's saying. And that is what the Bible says to the individual and to the whole world this evening. Let me put it then as a last principle in this form. The whole of recorded history, including modern history, proves that the case of the Bible is true. What are you doing there? At the end he puts it still more plainly. Verse 36. Why gettest thou about so much to change thy way? Thou shalt also be ashamed of Egypt as thou wast ashamed of Assyria. What's it mean? Well, it means this. Israel refusing to listen to the message of God through his prophet Jeremiah went on trusting to Egypt and to Assyria, but to no avail. The expedients failed, and they failed completely. They were not helped. The enemy came and overwhelmed them. Nobody could save them. All the things to which they rushed left them completely helpless, and they were destroyed. That is the fact in the case of the children of Israel. And my dear friend, if you read right through your Old Testament, you will find that it is what proved to be the case with them every single time without a single exception. You can read the story of the whole nation of Israel. You can read it in the case of individual kings and individual peoples. The way of the transgressor is hard. It always leads to trouble. Egypt and Assyria cannot save. And isn't this obvious at the present time? We've never had it so good. We've never been so wealthy. We've never had such good houses. We've never had so many pleasures. We've never been so well educated. We've never had so many institutions catering for every part and portion of our life and existence. Everything that can be done is being tried. Look at it all and the cost of it all. But the question that needs to be asked is this. Is it solving the problem? Is it solving the moral problem? I want to ask you a personal question, my friend. Do you find that your knowledge and education solve you a moral problem? Can you reason away temptation and lust and desire? 
Do you find that knowledge alone strengthens your will? Do you find that a mere knowledge of right and wrong is really the full solution to the problem? What's the matter with us? We've been running to these things, but they haven't helped us. Look at the moral muddle. Look at the breakdown in marriage. Look at the breakdown in homes. Look at the unhappiness. Why this phenomenal increase in the taking of drugs? Why is crime on the increase? Why is there this awful international tension? There are your facts. In spite of our experience, in spite of turning our back on this and saying we can do it, believing in these powers and forces to which we've turned. The problem is greater than ever. The problem is on the increase. Everybody's admitting this. Special conferences are being called because of it. What's the matter? Well, my dear friends, can't we see it? It's the folly of going after the wrong experience, turning to Assyria and to Egypt. These things never have satisfied. They never will. Can you buy happiness with money? By breaking the moral law, do you get satisfaction? By giving yourself to your immoralities and lusts and vices, do you achieve peace and joy and tranquility? Do you rest in peace? Are you satisfied? Those were really the questions that Jeremiah was addressing to his nation. In this 18th verse, what art thou doing in the way of Egypt? What art thou doing in the way of Assyria? And I ask you, my friend, tonight in your personal life, have you found peace? You who say that the Bible is out of date and it's got nothing to tell you, are you happy? Have you found rest in your soul? You've tried everything else, perhaps. Ah, uh, you left your home and you spat upon the sanctities. You said you were going to be a modern man. You were going to be a modern woman. You were going to live life according to 20th century ideas. Very well, you've stopped at nothing. You've tried it all. Answer me a simple question. Are you satisfied? Have you got rest and peace in your soul? Have you got a quiet heart? Are you ready to meet whatever may happen tomorrow? Are you ready to die? Are you ready to face eternity? My dear friends, let's stop being theoretical. Let's ask a pragmatic, practical question. Where have these things brought us? What have they given us? Do they satisfy? Egypt, Assyria, all the things we've tried, they do not, they never have. They've always failed. Read the biographies. Read your history books. They've never satisfied. There's really no need for anybody to do any more than read just one book of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. And there you've got the complete answer. There are men, there's a man who's tried wisdom, he's tried wealth, he's tried pleasure, he's tried happiness, he's tried great estates, he's tried everything. Still, he can't find it. Of course he can't. What's the matter, I say? Oh, it is that men will not listen to this message. He'll go everywhere and be busy and rush back and forth and gad about, whereas there is only one thing to do. 
And this is the final tragedy. It is the tragedy of not listening to this way, which is so simple, oh, but which is so successful. There's no need to go to Assyria, there's no need to go to Egypt. What had Israel to do? There was only one thing to do, to turn back to God. Nothing else. She can try the whole world, it'll never succeed. Why? Well, because she's God's people. God had called that man Abram and had turned him into a nation. He'd made a nation for himself out of that one man. Israel is God's people. They've been so made that they can only flourish and be happy and have real joy as long as they're obeying the law of their being. That's true of everything. And whatever they may do, if they're not obeying the law of their being, they'll never find satisfaction and peace and happiness and joy. And you know, my friends, it's the same thing is true of men. Man turns everywhere except to the one place to which he should turn. It's as simple and as direct as that. That is why the Lord Jesus Christ said, except he be converted and become as little children. He shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. We are so clever. We think we know. We rush here and there. We do this and that. We multiply. And it comes to nothing. What have we got to do? Oh, just become children. Say we failed. I've gone wrong. I've gone astray. I've been a fool. In my wisdom, I've been mad. I'm giving up. I'm giving in. I don't know. I'm a tyro. I'm a child. Confess it. That's repentance. Come back. Recognize the law of your own being. Oh, let me use the immortal words of St. Augustine again. Look at him. Brilliant philosopher. One of the giant intellects of all the centuries. Scintillatingly brilliant as a thinker. And yet, you remember, with his moral weakness and his moral problem, keeps his mistress. All the brilliant thinking, yet keeping his mistress and his saintly mother praying for him. But Augustine knew he wouldn't listen to his mother's simple faith. He was too great a brain, too great a philosopher. And he tries this and he tries that. He knew he was wrong and he was trying to deal with it, but he couldn't deal with it. And at last, weary and tired, and sick and sad and wounded and sore, he suddenly says it all. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. You can go round and round the world. You can try everything. It'll avail you nothing. Thou hast made us. And because God has made us and made us in the way that he has made us, we cannot know rest and we shall know no rest until we find it in God. We're like the needle and the compass. Being drawn and attracted here and there, there's only one point, there's only one place of rest. It must come back 
to that place, that northern point. There is the point, that magnetic north. And there, there is rest. And my dear friend, I tell you in the name of God this evening, you can try the philosophies of the universe. You can try the drugs, you can try the pleasure, you can try the vice, the immorality, the learning, the social amelioration. You can compass land and sea. They'll never satisfy you. It is God alone who can satisfy man. Man is bigger than the world in which he is. He has got this in him that was made by God and is like God and demands God and cries out for the living God without knowing it. And nothing can give that rest except that knowledge of God. And you know, it's the thing that's offered us in the Christian gospel. While man was rushing hither and thither, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. You know, this is a miracle. There's no need to be clever. There's no need to make these alliances and rush back and forth and be self-contradictory. It isn't poverty that causes man's ills. It isn't wealth that causes man's ills. What is it? It's that man doesn't know God. There are miserable millionaires tonight, as well as miserable paupers. There are miserable brilliant intellects, as well as miserable ignoramuses. There are miserable people in palaces. There are miserable people in pigsties. Man's bigger than a house. He's bigger than his bank balance. He's bigger than his country. Man is made for God. Oh, when will you wake up? When will the world wake up? And cease to run here and there and try to solve the problems. When you see the failure, it's failing all along the line. And it will fail. Man in sin must be brought under the law of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And men must be taught the fear of God. He must be taught again the law of God. And he must be taught that if he breaks it, he'll suffer. And he will. And when he's been convicted by this law of God and sees his miserable failure, he must be pointed to the love and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Oh, the tragedy of the world. If you but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find peace, my friend. Peace with God. Peace within. Peace with others. You lose the fear of life. You lose the fear of death. You'll have a new power. You'll have a new mind. You'll have a strength to enable you to deal with the other powers that are in your fallen nature that will enable you to overcome. It's the only power. Man is in such a plight and in such a predicament that it takes the almighty power of God to deliver him, to save him, to rescue him.
and to enable him to live in a worthy and in a happy manner. Oh, why gaddest thou about? What hast thou to do in the way of Egypt? What hast thou to do in the way of Assyria? Why, my dear friend, are you turning anywhere and everywhere only to be disappointed when there is only one thing you need? There is but one thing needful. And that is to turn back to the God who made you, acknowledging your folly and your sin, and accepting his offer of free pardon and forgiveness, new life and a new nature, a new power and a hope of heaven and of glory, in and through our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Why not give up? Why not give in? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. Now. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.